morning, as well as also in the Bible study class, we turned our attention to some powerful thoughts relative to God's Word for our life. And if it be the will of our Heavenly Father, let us also do that again tonight. A moment ago, a text was read from us from one of those major prophets of the Old Testament. We will use that as a portion of the lesson, but the title that I have chosen, the one that in fact will, I hope, be a little enticing, is simply this. A murderer one minute, a God the next. A murderer one minute, a God the next. What might we conclude as we look in deeply into a passage found in the book of Acts that will challenge us not only to appreciate the thoroughness of that title, but in fact to challenge you and me today and see whether we might be guilty of also thinking similar thoughts like that. As we begin, might we note that in its 28 chapters, the book of Acts is a beautiful exposition. It sets forth in marvelous majesty the beginning of the Lord's body, the church. It's establishment on Pentecost and its explosive growth in the first century. We quickly read how that so many were attracted to that simple and pure message of truth that people were d desiring greatly to hear it and to respond to it. However, it did not grow without opposition. Those individuals such as Paul and the others, as they would preach quite often, there were those who did not like the message. Do we not remember that Stephen, as he preached, so antagonistic were they toward his message, they picked up rocks and stoned him in Acts chapter 7. Later in Acts chapter 14, the beloved apostle Paul was also stoned and left for dead, though he did not die at that time. As the book marches onward, we will pick up the thread of our story tonight in chapter 21, and the time will actually come that we will consider a text in which a person was hailed as a murderer one minute and as a god the next. And from that we will draw several amazing lessons. In Acts chapter 21, the beloved apostle Paul found himself arrested because of his loyalty to God and his plain preaching of the truth. There were those Jews who did not appreciate the message. And what's more, as a result of that, they even thought that he defiled the temple. In Acts chapter 22, Paul actually asked that he might preach to that group of people who had just had it in their mind to destroy and kill him. Paul preached a beautiful lesson and one to which they paid great attention until verse 22. At that point, Paul mentioned the Gentiles. And they didn't like it even a little bit. So antagonistic and angry were they that they would listen no further. Those who were the rulers and the leaders desired to know what Paul had done that so aggravated these listeners, but they could gain no answer. Finally, in chapter 23, Paul appeared before the Sanhedrin, the highest Jewish ruling council. They thought surely they could determine why this man was so hated. As we might remember, they too were unable to discover the answer. For Paul in his brilliance was able to appear before them and they had nothing whereof they might accuse him. He was no criminal. He had broken no Jewish laws. As Acts chapter 24 proceeds, Paul even appeared before various rulers such as Felix and ultimately Festus and also Agrippa in chapter 26. All the while, all of them failed. They could find nothing in Paul worthy of the treatment he had been given. In order to receive justice in Acts 25, 11, Paul appealed to Caesar. 
He desired to appear before the highest ruling man in the world, the emperor of the Roman Empire, and before him Paul would present his case. As Acts chapter 27 opens, Paul proceeds to board a ship, and on the way toward Rome he would go. We will remember, though, the interesting episode that befell Paul and the others on that ship in that chapter, for they encountered a mighty storm at sea. So ferocious and mighty was that storm that all 276 aboard, in fact, we recognized the ship did not make it. Cast asunder, these washed ashore on the island the Bible calls in Acts 28.1, the island of Milita. You and I today, as we scan a map of the Mediterranean Sea, know that is the island of Malta. Paul was shipwrecked, but not a precious soul on board that ship was lost. God had appeared to Paul and said, if they abide in the ship, they'll not be lost. And thus they all came ashore. That brings us to the recognition that this little place called Malta, it wasn't a particularly civilized area. It was an island inhabited by those the Bible calls barbarians. They weren't overly educated. They were not overly those that we'd recognize to be high and great in society. With that as a background, please read with me beginning in Acts 28. Let's begin by reading the first four verses. Acts 28, verse number 1. And when they were escaped, then they knew that the island was called Melita. And the barbarous people showed us no little kindness, for they kindled a fire and received us every one, because of the present rain and because of the cold. And when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, there came a viper out of the heat and fastened on his hand. And when the barbarians saw the venomous beast hang on his hand, they said among themselves, No doubt this man is a murderer, whom though he hath escaped the sea, yet vengeance suffereth not to live. To finish that story we had begun a moment ago, Paul and the others on board that ship washed ashore here on this island in the Mediterranean Sea. And those people who inhabited that island were very kind to Paul and the others who'd washed ashore and who had made it to land. So much so in verse number 2, we noticed that they showed great kindness. They aided them in preparing a fire. They showed all of them no little kindness, the text says. Verse number 3 goes on to inform us that the very actions were as follows. Paul proceeded to gather some sticks. We know that the scene was a cold one because verse 2 informs us of that. But as Paul proceeded to put those sticks on the fire, a venomous beast, a poisonous snake, came writhing out of that wood because of the heat and he snatched onto Paul's hand. Those savages, those folks on that island, as they witnessed what took place, they were certain in their mind of this much. That man's a murderer. Oh, he may have been able to escape the terror and the mightiness of the sea, but vengeance will still be served. Justice must still come upon him. He must be a murderer. Isn't it interesting that as that snake fastened on to Paul, these on the island were certain of their conclusion. They were certain that Paul was guilty of some crime, and they called it murder. However, before we are too hasty, let us finish by reading the next two verses. We seem to have convinced ourselves by the inspiration of God that these island folks, those on the island of Melita, convicted Paul, at this point, guilty of murder. Verse number 5. And he took off the beast, and he shook off the beast into the fire, and felt no harm. How be it? 
They looked when he should have swollen or fallen down dead suddenly. But after they had looked a great while and saw no harm come to him, they changed their mind and said that he was a god. So notice, though they continued to watch all, he simply slung the snake off into the fire. It let go of his hand, but they felt certain that by the placement of that venom within Paul, and knowing that there were no medical doctors like you and I have today, he couldn't just run to an emergency room and proceed to have a serum whereby his life could be saved. They were certain that Paul would die any moment. That beast had already bitten him, and you and I well know a rattlesnake bite or a copperhead bite, if not taken care of, will soon lead to death. Well, they were certain that this man who was, in fact, a murderer one minute was now a god the next because moment after moment they watched and his arm was fine. Paul didn't faint. He didn't become unconscious. He didn't grow dizzy. No change in his demeanor at all. Thus, though this man they called a murderer a few minutes earlier, they now hailed as a god. Isn't it amazing and fascinating how people can change their mind? A murderer one minute, a god the next. Let us investigate more fully from the Word of God tonight some times and occasions whereby we might be guilty of the same thing. We each might be quick to say, well, now none of us would ever hail a person who we thought a moment ago a murderer to suddenly be a god. And quite likely that's indeed true. But there's a deeper lesson here. The Holy Spirit has written this for you and me so that we may appreciate the fickleness of human character. The fact that men and women, human beings like you and me, we change our minds so often. And let's notice then three points that help us appreciate this fact. The opinion of society is very changeable. As you and I think about the nature of what we observe in society, it seems that nothing is fixed and rigid. Everything seems to change with the passing of the day and the passing of the time and the coming of a new era. Those court decisions that are hailed today and rigidly fixed as you and I perceive by those judges in our land, a court tomorrow may overturn it. The Supreme Court may completely reverse the decision in the days ahead. Our president may well have a high presidential rating in one day, and perhaps a few weeks later his poll numbers have plummeted. People are so changeable. Society is so changeable. Do we not see then that even in society there is a hallmark that seems to be the same as what we saw from those barbarous people on the island of Melita? Their mind changed so rapidly. We certainly understand that that's also true not only in judges' work and not only in politics, but what about the nature of society as a whole? Can you and I remember a time when certain types of activities were recognized as being inappropriate and unacceptable, but suddenly now there seems to be little argument against them? They are accepted as being normal and fine and not problematic. There was a day, not too many decades back, when you and I well remember that by and large it was looked upon as disgraceful for a child to be born out of wedlock. It was understood that the husband needed to be married to that same wife and the child born to them was then born in the proper and respectable fashion. 
But today you and I watch the television and see almost on a continuous basis to where things like that take place and who thinks anything of it anymore? Certainly most of those who make the TV programs don't and they naturally expect that you and I will not think much of it either. Various kinds of lifestyles that were once recognized as unacceptable and deviant by description from the Word of God are no longer thought of that way. In fact, more than one of the particular nationalities around the world have actually legalized homosexual marriage. Isn't that amazing? A hundred years ago, that would never been thought of. No one would have believed it had we told them. And now society has openly embraced and in many ways accepted it, proclaimed it as all right, simply altered it to what the Bible describes, but still acceptable. Might we stop to think a minute, a murderer one minute, a God the next? In light of what we've said, is mankind really able to form a standard or basis based upon his own capabilities? I believe we've already answered that question. These on the island of Melita were in no position to make a final recognition and conclusion about Paul. They changed their mind too easily. Today, might that also be true in our land? Folks embrace something when they haven't given it due consideration, especially in light of the whimsical nature of man. It was read in their hearing a moment ago from that great prophet of old in Jeremiah 10 verse 23. Oh Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. You know, you and I as humans have a marvelous ability to overestimate our capability. We think we have the answers. We turn to the scientist and trust that what he finds in that laboratory is rigid and absolute and fixed. We're willing to give him the greatest of adoration and respect. When after all, tomorrow new findings may come out that seem to overturn that which he apparently thought he had discovered. In the world of medicine... That very element that seems to be a good medicine today, five years from now we may be told it's carcinogenic. It actually aids in the causing of cancer. That medicine that is thought to be proper and good and right may soon found to not be so. There may be side effects that we don't know yet. You and I could extend this list on and on. The way of man is not in himself. Well, just as surely as we have discussed these matters in physical ways, what about in the world of religion? Surely man can do a better job in the world of religion. Can't he? Well, again, he can't. These on that island, remember, thought that Paul on one moment was a murderer and they were ready to call him a god and worship him the next. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that amazing? All throughout the nature of God's Word, we read time and again of where mankind fails greatly in that regard. Jesus in Matthew 15, as he made discussion, he quoted from the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament, and he even stated that they draw nigh to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Notice, if they are willing to let mankind be the standard, We've already noted that man doesn't have a fixed decision. He changes his mind with the every drop of a hat. That's no basis for religion. You and I should want our life founded on something far stronger than that. We should want our life bedrock and based upon a foundation that is unmovable. 
Recall what Paul noted to those who were in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul, as he addressed to them the subject of the resurrection, he closed the chapter by stating, in verse number 58 of that chapter, Be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Several chapters earlier in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11, Paul, what is the unmovable foundation? For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid which is Christ Jesus. Now you and I are coming to the point where we're seeing a gigantic chasm between Christ and his unchangeable character on one hand and the changeability of man on the other. Do we not read in Hebrews 13, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. Christ's word doesn't change. Unlike man's laws that change. Unlike his opinions that change. Unlike his speculations that seem to ebb and flow with the wind. It's no wonder that Paul admonished and encouraged those in Ephesus in Ephesians 4 to be not carried about with every wind of doctrine. There is something certain in the world of religion, and it's not due to man. It's due to God. It's his revelation, and you and I are blessed to have it. You and I can go to a bookstore in Cookville, even Walmart, and we can purchase the Holy Word of God for a few dollars. There are folks around this world who can't get a copy. You and I, as we support those who work in India, they hand out Bibles faster than we can supply them. They're hungry and thirsting for truth, and yet we have it right here at our disposal. Isn't that wonderful? Haven't we been blessed richly by the God of heaven to have it in such clear abundance? And it is unchangeable. The absolute foundation upon which life can be based, and that life is then certain and sure, and ready not to be carried about by an easy way of false doctrine, not to be based on something that's flimsy. Perhaps along this line we can also understand that message that our Savior shared near the close of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. Beginning in verse 24 of that chapter, Jesus spoke about that that you and I have always remembered. We share it with our young children and we expect them to know about the man who built his house on the sand. And what happened? The foundation was weak. When the winds blew, the rains fell, the house did too. For it was founded upon something too weak to sustain the force that was brought against it. But what about the one who built his house on the rock? Well, notice the same elements came against it. The floods came, the winds blew, but the Lord made sure to say that this one did not fall, for it was founded on a rock. Nothing could sidestep it. Nothing could crush it. Nothing could make it fall under the weight. That's the kind of life we need, don't we agree? The recognition that if we are building upon the sand, we have really no cause to think that that flimsy foundation will sustain us through this life and certainly won't make us ready for judgment. But if we found our life on the rock of Jesus Christ, the beautiful recognition of His unchanging Word, we not only will have a safe course through this life, but we'll be ready to meet Him in judgment and with a smile on our face enter into the glorious joys of an everlasting heaven. Which brings us to the final point of our lesson tonight. We've seen the changing character of man. We have at least in part noted it's even that way in religion. 
But let us spend the next few moments looking at some other verses that tell us about the unchangeable character of the Word of God. We've seen a few, but oh, there's so many more. If we might begin that discussion, note with me, if you would, the statement itself found in James 1, verse 17. In the opening chapter, the opening stanza of that five-chapter book of James, we read of description about the God of heaven. We notice that it's He's not variable in His presentation. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. That image, shadow of turning, is an interesting one, and certainly on a beautiful sunny day like today, that's very meaningful. We understand that if we place an object in the sun, it will cast a shadow. That text simply informs us to note the following. If we alter or twist or turn that object, the shadow will change. There is no shadow of turning with God. He's always the same. He's that loving and merciful and benevolent and gracious God that desires you and me to be saved. We noted this morning that the Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Verse 9 of Second Peter 3. That loving character of God presents the unchangeable nature of His Word as presented to us. Recall the statement found in that beautiful chapter in the Old Testament, Psalm 119. In that beautiful exposition, David on many occasions made affirmation of this point. In verse 128 of that chapter, recall that David therein said, I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right, and I hate every false way. Mankind cannot offer any foundation like that. The greatest scholars that men have ever been able to offer cannot present a foundation like that. Verse 89 of that chapter, O Lord, I know thy word is settled in heaven. The word of God doesn't find its source of strength and basis from anything on earth. It is settled in heaven. Doesn't that paint a grand and also tragic picture about those on our world today who place their trust upon commandments and edicts and decisions that men may make? There are various conferences and synods and councils that meet and legislate laws for various religious bodies. Those men are fickle, they're whimsical. They're not operating on the Word of God that has been provided and given. That's so sad. You and I desire to found our life and our perspective of eternity on that which never, ever changes. This Bible that you and I read and study is just as needful today as it was a hundred years ago. Those first century saints of 1900 years ago had the same word we do. And if God lets this world stand a thousand years from now, they'll need it just as badly as we the Word of God is needful for every generation. Some have made note, and rightly so, that the world today needs the old Jerusalem gospel, not any new one. When Christ Jesus came to this earth, He did so according to Galatians 4 verse 4, in the fullness of time God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, and at the proper time Jesus came, and when He did... He ultimately did the Father's will ascending back to heaven and in the church that he established. 
He culminated the final plan for human redemption. That church you and I are blessed to be a part of. And absolutely unchangeable is its nature. Mankind has devised many organizations around the world. There are civic clubs and social organizations. There are political types of organizations. None of them hold a candle to the church. For only the church is everlasting. Only the church will never, ever change. Men may make decisions that are incorrect, foolish, and wrong, but God's word is absolutely right, and forever shall it be. Again, let us recall, Jeremiah did say, O Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. You and I should ever understand that the direction of our steps must, if it's to be pleasing and right, be founded on the nature of the unchangeable Word of God. That unchangeable characteristic recalls to our mind the statement Jesus made. And may we think about this for the next moment or two. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus spoke about great upheavals that would happen upon this earth. Unfortunately, there are many today who misunderstand what our Savior taught, for they don't read carefully enough in that chapter. The questions that opened that chapter were these. Four of the Lord's apostles came to him, and with great earnestness they asked, What shall be the sign of thy coming, and of the end of the world? And when shall these things be? As Jesus began to answer their questions, the time came when, in verse number 34, he made note that, This generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Thus, those things described in those verses prior to that one would happen before that generation ended. But then he said in verse 35, Heaven and earth shall not pass away till my words also remain. My words are steadfast, sure, and true, and they will not pass away. What does that say about the word of the the Lord? What does that say about the word of Jesus? Those men who live in the first century have long since died. Even those who lived in our land 200 years ago have long since passed on. And their words are no longer with us as those things that are law. But notice what about the Bible? These words penned by the Holy Spirit so long ago are still with us and they're still that which remains. Didn't Jude exhort us in Jude verse 3 to contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all time delivered to the saints. That phrase, once for all time, is actually in the Greek. That's not a translator's introduction. The Holy Scriptures were introduced once for all time. There's never going to be an appendix needed. There's never going to be a time that will be outdated. Never be a time it will need to be replaced. That should be of the greatest comfort to you and me that we can base our life on something that steadfast and that true and that certain. We noted earlier in our lesson tonight, a murderer one minute, a God the next. Man is so flimsy quite often in his decisions. We don't have all the knowledge to make the absolute proper and right decision, but thankfully with regard to the Word of God, we don't need that. It's already been given. And in Ephesians 3 verse 4, Paul said, when you read, you may understand my knowledge. God's word was given in a way that you and I are meant to understand it. Sometimes we note that in man's so-called brilliance and in his so-called act of doing things, he writes things that nobody can understand. 
Who among us can easily read what a lawyer in Putnam County or a lawyer in Cookfield would write? It's written in fancy legalistic language and we have a hard time understanding it. How thankful we should be that the Bible was written on an easy grade level. There's no problem understanding it. The only question is, will we do what it says? That's the deeper question. Those barbarians on the island of Malta, Melita as we noted in Acts 28, they change their minds so readily. May we realize that when it, when it comes to the things that you and I do in life, we have lots of decisions to make. But when it comes to basing our life and making ready for eternity, there's really no decision. It's not a murderer one minute, a God the next. It is the unchangeable Word of God always. The Apostle Paul and the others, of which we read in the New Testament, were willing to give their life in defense of this truth. Would they have given their life in defense of something changeable? Would they have given their life in defense of something they knew not to be the absolute standard of foundation in faith? As the Apostle Paul reached the close of his life, just as a testimony to the certainty with which he considered the Word, notice with me the closing thoughts he ever wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He told Timothy, I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's 2 Timothy 4 verse 1. In recognition of that judgment that was to come upon him, he charged him. What charge did Paul give to Timothy? Verse number 2 informs us. Preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers, having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and be turned into fables. But watch thou in all things. Do the work of an evangelist. Make full proof of thy ministry. And then we have Paul's personal reflection. Notice in verses 7 and 8, I have fought a good fight. I finished my course. I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not to me only, but unto all of them also that love is appearing. What precious words Paul gave to Timothy. Of all the things Paul could have encouraged him, he said, Preach the word. Timothy wasn't to tell fables and stories. Preach out of the Wall Street Journal or the most recent edition of the Christianity Today magazine. Preach the word, Timothy, for that's the only thing that will save the sin-sick soul of man. Nothing has changed in that. The word of God, you see, is absolute. Never should we think that it is to be interpreted like man often does, a murderer one minute and a God the next. You and I know that it's certain, steadfast and absolutely sure. So much so that in the closing thought for the night, in Revelation chapter 20, on the occasion when the judgment occurs, the, interestingly enough, the point is made the books will be opened. What book is that? What books will be opened at the judgment? Have you ever given any thought to that? I'm sure we each have on an occasion. What books will be opened? Well, we can certainly appreciate from the teaching of the Bible what some of the books must be. There's the book of life for certain that contains in it the names of those who are saved. But there also we should appreciate a book containing the scroll, if you will, of the Old Testament for those living in that era will be judged by it. But what about those like you and me living today? 
We noted this morning from Romans 2.16, the gospel will be the judge. In a sense that it will be the standard and our life will be judged in accordance to it. And thus the matter, apparently that gospel will be opened as well. That's how steadfast this gospel is. It's not going to change in time. The world needs it desperately. Our lives need it desperately. Are we then living by it? Those on Melita changed their mind from a murderer one minute to a God the next. Thankfully, you and I too can change ours when we discover we've been wrong, when we discover we've been amiss. We need then constant examination of our life. Am I walking in the faith? Are you walking in the faith? We're told in 2 Corinthians 13, examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. Are you walking in the faith tonight? A hymn of invitation has been chosen and selected. Base your life on the only foundation that will never shift and move. It's a foundation that is the infallible, inerrant, perfect will of God. And Paul called it that in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 10. We each enjoy the thought of perfection. Are you based on something perfect? You can be. But if you aren't, tonight be a marvelous opportunity to make that decision and change your mind like those barbarians did on the island of Melita. Jesus humbly pleads with you. In fact, he says, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will open the door, I'll come in and sit with him and he with me. Revelation 3 verse 20. Notice, though, that you must open that door. He will not force entry into your life. He won't burst the door down and force himself upon you. He will only be invited as a guest. Have you invited him into your heart? Have you invited him warmly and cordially and welcomely into your life? For if you haven't, tonight is the night. There will never be another better time for obedience than this. Believe upon Jesus as your Savior. Repent of the sins in your life inasmuch as you know that they are what sent your Savior to the cross. Confess His sweet name as your Savior and be buried, immersed in water for the forgiveness, the remission of your sins, Acts 2.38. Once you've done that, you will have the burden of sin lifted from your life, for the Lord will have taken them all away. Once you walk with Him hand in hand, you will know that when living faithfully until death, the promise of eternal life is yours. Your reservation for heaven has been stamped. But when you make mistakes and when you sin in a public way, welcomely ask for the prayers of brethren. They'll be more than honored to pray on your behalf, even as we did together this morning. We each observe the power of God's forgiveness upon those who will confess and make repentance of that. We could pray on your behalf tonight if that's the need in your life. If we could assist you in any way tonight, whether confession and baptism or in that of praying on your behalf, hesitate no longer, but will you not come even now while together we stand and while we sing?